Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. As usual, I want to begin by reminding you that a volunteer, one of you, Charlie Fabian, is available to take any suggestions for what we should cover, how we might go about it, clips if you have them to help us create segments for this show. If you have anything like that, send it to him, email, here's his address, charlie.info438 at gmail.com, charlie.info438 at gmail.com. Today we're going to talk about King Charles's visit to Kenya, about Starbucks workers unionizing and striking. We're going to talk about the Tesla Motor Company and the problems it is having. And then with workers, garment workers, producing our clothing in Bangladesh. And in the second half of the program, we're going to talk about some basic issues in economic theory, namely the theory of the surplus and the theory of profits. Okay, let's jump right in. King Charles of Britain recently visited Kenya in East Africa, and there he gave a speech in which he expressed regret for some of what the British did in Kenya during the period of time that Kenya was a colony of Great Britain. The papers in Kenya and many politicians had expected, hoped for, and requested an apology for what was done, as I'll explain in a minute. But the British government and their king could not bring themselves to say, I am sorry for what I did. They just expressed regret that it happened. I want to talk to you about that. The first book I ever published was called The Economics of Colonialism. Britain and Kenya from 1895 to 1930. It was published in 1974 by the Yale University Press. And I there in that book explained in detail the research I had conducted both in Kenya and at the British Colonial Office in London to figure out what the British did. I'm going to only summarize it here because it'll give you an idea of what King Charles should have apologized for but could not bring himself to do. I looked at two censuses taken in Kenya by the British early in their time of the colonial ownership of that country, around the turn of the century, 1900 sometime around then. And 25 years later, the population at the first was 4 million. The population at the second was 2 million. Okay, so the first thing that he might have apologized for was the systematic extermination of the Kenyan population simply by being a colonial territory. And why did that happen? 
Well, Britain did in Kenya what Britain did everywhere else and what the French and the Dutch and the Belgians also did, and the Americans later too. They arranged for the Kenyan people and the Kenya country to be useful for Britain. Britain wanted the Kenyans to produce things that the British could make money off of, in particular, coffee. And coffee remains to this day a major export of that country that they depend on. The British handled the coffee. Later, they added tea. Tea is now also, with coffee, a major export. Indeed, the only new thing now, years after independence, showing you the legacy of what was done, is the fact that Kenya now also exports flowers, cut flowers, to Europe. In order to make this happen, the British moved the Kenyan population. Millions of people from one area to another, crowding them into what were called reservations, reserved areas that were not big enough to sustain the African population, which meant that the only way they could survive was to go out and work for, you guessed it, British settlers who were given the choice land in what was called the Kenyan highlands, where they produced coffee using the labor of the coerced African population. That's why so many died. That's why so many got sick. There were few or no hospitals. When I was in Kenya in the 1960s, there were four high schools for a population in the millions. Nothing was done, except if it was useful to Britain to get money out of this colony. That's what King Charles might have apologized for. Eventually, as happens in all settler colonies sooner or later, the oppressed people, if they are not ethnically cleaned out of existence, resist. In the early 1950s, the African population of Kenya exploded against British colonialism in a revolt that lasted quite a while and was known as the Mao Mao Uprising. It's that that led the British to murder and torture huge numbers of Kenyan militants. It's that that King Charles regretted. Not all that led up to it, not all that happened, not all that colonialism has always meant. And that's why it's a bitter legacy that all the pomp and circumstance of a royal visit does absolutely nothing to erase or to even come to terms with as it might have. Settler colonialism is a disaster wherever it has occurred, and it is something for which modern capitalism has a lot to apologize for. My next update has to do with Starbucks. Starbucks has, in case you don't know, roughly 16,000 outlets here in the United States. About 370 of them have seen the workers at Starbucks go on strike, take other actions 
to form unions. And they've been successful. They actually tried more than that, but they've been successful in 370. But success means you win an election. Success means you force a strike. But then you have to sit down with the corporation and sign a contract to cover the work. And Starbucks has so far resisted doing that. That's why on the 16th of November, there was the Red Cup Rebellion, in which workers, clients, and friends of people working at Starbucks expressed their horror at the unfair labor practices that the Starbucks unions have been filing in Washington and in state capitals against the stalling technique of Starbucks. And they asked people who were friends and allies and understood what was at stake here to show their solidarity in any way that they might. The company fought the unionization efforts and lost. Now it refuses to sign a contract in good faith. If you ever wanted an example of class war never ending, Starbucks is the nearest place where you can see it in all its gory action. My next update is about Sweden. In Sweden, there are lots of Tesla automobiles, and that means there are Tesla service centers. And the workers who maintain the Teslas are demanding the rights to collectively bargain an agreement to cover their wages and working conditions. Tesla didn't want to give them collective bargaining arrangement, which is very common in Sweden and has been for many decades. So the Tesla service center workers went out on strike on the 27th of October, and they're still out. They are angry that the Tesla company is evading the collective bargaining. It's a competitive strategy because, of course, if you had to pay higher prices for the work done to maintain your Tesla, well, it would show up in the bill you'd have to pay or the price of the Tesla if they cover it and so on. And there's a lesson here we should learn. Corporations compete around making profits. And to make their profits as high as possible, to win the competition, they like to, as they put it, keep down labor costs. Or to say th the same thing more honestly, to underpay their workers, because that will boost their profits. And if you let them, they'll do it. And if you don't let them, they'll complain that you ought to let them. And they'll give you reasons like, gee, if we were more competitive and made more profits, we could grow the company. And then we would eventually hire more workers. To which the answer has always been, oh, and you'll underpay them too, I suppose. Corporations have used the argument that it's not good for profits to try to stop every kind of social legislation. A hundred years ago, it was common for corporations to employ children as young as five and six years of age. And when confronted about the horror of what they did to those children 
in the workshops where they were employed, they used the same argument. Gee, that helps us with our profits. And that's what's really good in the long term. So you should let us employ your children. You know what the mass of the working class did? It recoiled in horror at what was being said. And one by one, the countries of the world, and they're still doing it, passed laws that outlawed child labor. You're going to have to get your profits somewhere else, not on the backs of abusing the children of our culture. Well, you could do the same thing about all the other ways corporations try to boost their profits. That's how capitalism works. They either do it or we stop them from doing that. And that brings me to the last update we'll have time for in the first half of today's show. Bangladesh is one of the countries in the world most responsible for producing inexpensive clothing. Here's the reality in case you're not familiar. There are 3,500 garment-producing factories in Bangladesh. Clothing accounts for 85% of their exports. Four million workers work in the garment industry, overwhelmingly women. The current minimum wage paid to those women, millions of them, is $75 per month. That's the minimum wage. They've been acting on strike to raise it to $208 per month, and the government offers $113. Next time you put on an inexpensive piece of clothing and they service Zara, H&M, Walmart, Target, yeah, your clothes, my clothes, that's the conditions under which they are produced, if you let them. We've come to the end of the first half of today's economic update. I hope you find these interesting and worth thinking about. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. Before I turn to the material about surplus and profits for this half, I want to bring you up to date on a personal matter that I've thought about. You know, an issue that we've all read and thought about too much, but it's an issue we see in the, in the media. It usually doesn't come and touch us personally. But I just had an experience in which something did touch me personally. I had a nephew, the son of my sister. As one of America's black and brown young men, he was shot to death by the Sacramento Sheriff's Office a few days ago, stopped on the highway and killed. I can't tell you the sadness, the horror of what it feels like when one of these terrible social problems in this country comes home as it will sooner or later to every one of us. It hurts and it embitters. And one of the least things I can do is make sure 
it's not altogether buried as another minor piece of news. Okay, I want to turn to the concept of surplus. And this is a concept in economics that is central, in my view, to understanding what a capitalist economy is like, indeed, what any kind of economy is like. Why do I present it to you here? Because it is a concept almost never dared to be confronted or used or deployed to make sense of economics because the mainstream of economics is really frightened of this concept for reasons I think I can make clear. So let me explain what surplus means. And the greatest theorist of surplus, not the only one, but the greatest one, whose way of understanding it became the basis for an entire tradition of critical thought about capitalism, was Karl Marx. A good teacher, if you're courageous enough to try to learn what he understood. So here's the notion of surplus. In all human communities, from the most ancient that we have a record of right down to the present, it has been true that the people who do the work, and by work I mean using your brains and your muscles to transform something provided by nature into something human beings want to consume. Work is what transforms a tree into a chair, what transforms the wool from a sheep's back into a sweater. A piece of earth into a brick into a building. We all know what work is. And the concept of surplus says, whenever human beings have gotten together or even if they've worked all by themselves, they have always produced not only enough for their own consumption, enough sweaters to keep themselves warm, enough food to keep themselves alive and functioning, but they have always produced more than that. And that more that extra output that the adult workers in any community produce over and above what they consume, that's the surplus. Not so difficult. It's the extra. And we know it's true from studying every kind of society, past and present, for which there's evidence. And we can understand theoretically as well. For example, if the people who do the work, the adult, able-bodied human beings that transform nature into goods and services we can consume, if they only produced enough to take care of themselves, well, then the human race would have died out long ago. Why? Because children can't do work to produce surplus. You know what children are? I'm talking about little ones. One, two, three, four, those ages. They consume 
but they're not yet ready to produce. So if they're going to survive, if they're going to have food, clothing, and shelter, someone else has to produce a surplus that can sustain the children. A surplus is basic. But of course, over time, human communities have learned how to use the surplus to have some people who aren't children. If we produce enough surplus, we can sustain some adults. And you know what we can ask them to do? To create tools, sticks, with which we can hit the tops of trees and get more food, with which we can have some machines to help us be even more productive. And the history of the human race is that, is producing a bigger and bigger surplus. And the bigger the surplus produced by those who work, the larger the community, here we go now, that does not have to work also. You can take the surplus and not sustain just the children. You can sustain those in the community who do not produce a surplus, but who live off of the surplus delivered to them from the people who do the surplus. Now Marx comes along and says, we can now understand human history as the sequence of arrangements by which human communities have decided who is going to produce the surplus and who is going to decide what's done with the surplus. Will there be people who are told, you don't have to work, you don't have to sweat, you don't have to strain, you don't have to exhaust your muscles and your brain, because you don't have to do any work. You can just live off of the surplus workers produce that gets distributed to you for your consumption. Let me give you an example of somebody who lives off the surplus whose name you know, Elon Musk. Elon Musk has roughly, he has actually more than this, but I'm going to take a nice round number, $100 billion. His wealth is greater than that, but we're going to take $100 billion, okay? And he puts that in the hands of investment specialists. He doesn't invest the money himself. He's smarter than that. If you do that these days, you can expect to get 15%. Many money managers charge 20%. They promise you 20%, and they keep a portion of that. Doesn't mean they get it every year, but they get pretty close. I'm going to take 15%. So Elon Musk, having $100 billion invested at 15%, will earn on that money $15 billion per year. Wow. I did the arithmetic. You know what that works out to? $288 million a week. Let me explain that. He doesn't get that money 
because he works. He doesn't work. He doesn't produce a surplus. But millions of other people do produce a surplus, which capitalism gathers together and delivers to Elon Musk. If he wanted to work, he could get a wage like anybody else. And he could go to work like anybody else. And in his work, he could produce a surplus like other workers do. And then the question would be, who gets it? The wealthy in capitalism are the ones to whom the surplus is delivered. The mass of employees are the people who produce the surplus. It's always been that way since we've had either slavery or feudalism or capitalism. Here's how it worked in slavery. The slave did the work. The slave produced the food, the clothing, the shelter, did all the work. And you know who owned what the slave produced? The master. Because the master owned not just what the slave produced, but the slave himself or herself as human beings. That's what slavery means. So the output of the slave belonged to the master. And then the master took a portion, a portion of what the slaves produced and gave it back to the slaves so they could live. Food, clothing, shelter. Why did the master do that? Because he liked the slave? No, because he understood if he didn't do that, the slaves would die and then there'd be no surplus for him at all. So he took a portion of what the slaves produced, gave it back to them for their own consumption. The difference between what the slaves produced and what was given back to them for their consumption, that was the slave surplus. And that's how the masters lived. They consumed the surplus produced by the slave. The same is true of the serf and the Lord. There was no slavery then. The Lord didn't own the serfs of feudalism. Here's how it worked in Europe. Three days a week, the serf works on his own piece of land and keeps whatever he and his family produce there. Food, clothing, shelter. The other three days of the week, the serf goes to the land of the Lord and works there, and whatever he produces belongs to the Lord. Oh, that's the surplus. Those second three days are output from the worker that the worker doesn't keep. And now we come to capitalism. And all we're going to have time for today is for me to explain to you how the surplus shows up. And I'm going to do it by describing you a typical situation you've probably been in. You're looking for a job. You approach an employer and you have a conversation about your job. And the employer says, here's what you'll do. You'll come at eight. You'll stay till five. Here's where you'll work with this machine over here. And then you get to the interesting part. I'm going to pay you, the employer says, $20 an hour. And now Marx teaches us what you already know. 
that the only way that employer would ever pay you $20 an hour is if what you add to that, what the employer sells, is worth more than $20. Got to get something out of it for him. If you only added $20 worth of value to what he sells, and he sold it, and he got $20, and he paid you the $20, there'd be nothing in it for him. Capitalism means you always produce more for your employer than he pays you. So if you ever told yourself you'll never work for anyone who doesn't pay you what you're worth, you don't yet understand surplus and how the economy really works. We've come to the end of the show today. Next week, I'll talk to you about the concept of profit. And as always, I look forward to speaking with you again next week.